0: and make perfect sense out of our lives and (laughs) judge others effectively. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Um. Ah. There sure are lots of ways of being crazy, and and we're in a world where there's vast amounts of it in lots of ways. One of the ways I understand most obsessive-compulsive behavior is that people are, and this is is putting on the psychological hat, but people are obsessive and compulsive because they don't want to feel. And rather than feeling, you act out obsessively-compulsively. Uh, You will find people do this drinking. They will do this drugging. They will do this sexually. They will do this religiously. They will do this politically. Rather than feel, you get obsessive and compulsive about ways of thinking, ways of behaving. Rather than feel, I'm going to clean everything. Rather than feel, I'm going to rearrange everything. Rather than feel, I'm going to cut the lawn again. Rather than feel, I'm going to have sex with 97 people soon as I find them. Rather than, you know, rather rather than feel. And and this is a lot of, rather than feel, I'm going to overeat. Rather than feel, I'm going to smoke. I mean, that makes great sense to me. And so when, when uh, I deal with folks um, who are pretty compulsive and obsessive, um, I just need to know that, you know. Um, And, and I can identify with all sorts of areas in there because I get into that kind of behavior too. Um, My family, uh, political stuff was always a real thing in my family and Looking back on me as an adolescent and and as a young man, a lot of my political activism um, was so I didn't have to feel some things. I mean, convictions came later. But a lot of my acting out um, was so I didn't have to feel some of the awkwardness and some of the insecurity. Uh, I know I, I bumped into somebody um, a while ago on a retreat, and her family is is religiously crazy. Um, They get all off on God-Catholic Church stuff, and um, um, everybody, I mean, it seems to me, uh, the family's full of rage and and uh, abuse and power and dad's in charge and you cannot be loyal enough to the Pope. And, I mean, the family's crazy. And to say, oh, they're a very holy family, they're not holy. They're nuts. (laughs) Um, And and when they talk to any church people, they're full of suspicion. Can they trust you enough? It's paranoia. It's, it's, again, rage. But rather than be honest in their stuff, uh, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of grief and hurt in there down deep, but it takes the form of toxic faith, religious craziness. Lots of it. So they're sharing, you know that compulsive, obsessive people are starting to get well when they begin to have an emotional life. The problem with emotions is they're not neat. They're not, and they're not efficient. And we're a culture um, that values efficiency and neatness. Now, I have no problem with efficiency and neatness. But there are some times when I'm not neat and I'm not efficient. And I have to get some permission. I have to do some self-acceptance on that. I mean, if all I was going to do was sit and feel, nothing would get done. So people who mostly feel drive me crazy, too. You know, I, have, I have one sponsee, I think, <laughs> uh, who will call and say, Tom, since we talked last, I've had 87 feelings. I'd like to talk with you about each one of them. And, and I, I, he's not that interesting. I mean, he is totally fascinated. Then I felt a little insecure. I felt so happy. I, I, um, I, I just glaze over and I do crossword puzzles. Um, always carry a New York Times crossword puzzle with you. Uh, so you have something to do when you're listening to one of your sponsors who is so boring you can't stand it. Um, that's one of the little secrets of sponsorship. Always do crossword puzzles. Um, so, I mean, w- we get into a thing of balance here in recovery, you know, some kind of balance and a little less self-obsession. Somebody during the breaks, and again, culture, realize that culture's nuts. We value efficiency and the bottom line, and everything else gets sacrificed to that. All of these human and family values get ground up in the marketplace. Um, and uh, we think that's just, you know, the grand. Uh, what happens if you're not ab- always able to operate at peak performance? Well, we're pretty harsh on you. But the fact of the matter is the reason it's called peak performance is because it doesn't happen very often. Uh, Keep in mind Isaac Newton. To every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. I have times when I function very, very highly. Most weekends I have to be on a lot. Highly organized, clear, give points, listen to people, be attentive. I'm not real up on Mondays. (laughs) And I I used to think that I had an incurable illness. It must be brain cancer, you know, or... You know, every Monday I had diphtheria or um, or AIDS. I mean, something is very wrong. I just, or I'm sure I have chronic fatigue because every Monday I have no interest in even reading the paper. I just And, and uh, this went on for years until someone finally pointed out that from Friday until Sunday, I am up. <coughs> and that means Monday and Tuesday I get to be down. I need the breaks. This, again, this is part of the the understanding of Sabbath. I need the break. Um, So am I always at a ten? No. Is it okay to be at an eight? Eight's real good. Is it okay to operate at five? Sometimes five is real good. What about a two? You're still functioning. Good for you. You know? (laughs) There are times like that, and I want to give myself all that permission. Um... And it, some days are easier than others. That's right. This is called life. I was full of woe and complaint. Um, one of the women who runs the Chrysalis Center for Women in Oakland, which is a women's recovery house, uh, is a kind of an earth mother named Mary. And um, Mary is unflappable. Uh, this is why sometimes I just call Mary. And I was talking with her about how awful my life was and everything was going wrong and I wasn't getting my own way and I was tired and cranky and angry and hostile and uh, it was all their fault and she said and I, th- and I thought this was a big deal I mean, these are emergencies I'm dealing with and she said Tom, it sounds to me like you've got a case of life <laughs> you know, it's just hard so relax already relax already um, well, you're, you're feeling a little low how about medication? Well, that's a judgment call. Some people need medication. If 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 the stuff is biological, some people need it. Others of us don't. Um, I take thyroid because mine's dead. <laughs> but otherwise, you know, um, part of recovery uh, that is a good ethics is based on a good biology. Part of recovery is is to uh, see a physician regularly and get a checkup, especially if you're feeling lousy. There might be something physically wrong. You know, I mean, there might... Be. A lot of, of us who are in Al-Anon live with just a little bit of stress. <laughs> and sometimes that has real physical repercussions. And I know a number of untreated Al-Anons who have simply turned over and died from the stress. We get worn out. We get exhausted. Every so, uh, When I mentioned this thing I went through, what, five or eight years ago talking to my sponsor, you know, and who said don't put a band-aid on it. One of the pieces of footwork I did is I got a physical. And you uh, got a little feedback and he said, oh, you're fine physically, you know, anything going on otherwise, oh, you know. <laughs> taking the Reagan presidency a little seriously, <laughs> a little personally, you know. Um, and he, he said, well, there, there's medication, and I said, well, let's talk about that, and we had a conversation, and I decided no, but we talked about it, and if I was profoundly depressed and wasn't washing or leaving my room for six months in a row, I'd want to be on it. To get me to a place where I rediscovered hygiene. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> seems to me. Now, this is this is. I mean, I, um, and I give myself permission. Sometimes I function real well. Sometimes I don't function real well. The holidays are real stressful for lots of us, um, especially in Al-Anon with family craziness. Up, it, you have uh, the constitutional right to enjoy the holidays if you want to. And if you don't want to observe the holidays, don't. What are they going to do, yell at you again? (laughs) Um, If you entertain ungrateful people year after year after year, who's the crazy one? (laughs) Um, I want you to know that on Christmas Day and New Year's Day, movie houses are full of people from crazy families. What'd you do on Christmas this year? We went to six movies. Good for you. (laughs) Give yourself options. One one of my cousins, who is is way from the way she handles Christmas, is she travels to non-Christian countries, (laughs) where she doesn't have to put up with that crap from anyone. (laughs) Is the way she explains it. (laughs) Little hostility there, but. she looks forward to the holidays now you know because she goes to places where she but it's it we get to make choices as grown-ups and in the last hour or two i talked about how you know there are problems other than alcohol with with women and men we love and that's important to know uh, that's also true for us um, also healing for the addict and alcoholic is a slow process and just know that know that and frequently it's a spiral process and they, frequently it's two steps forward and sometimes twelve steps back. And then, you know, a little burgle of hell. If, if they're suddenly perking up and looking like grown-ups, don't take it personally. If they're suddenly acting out like nine-year-olds, don't take it personally. Let them be. Uh, I know for me, after I started waking up off the chemicals, um, it was as if I had no skin on. I had no defenses because see, booze was my defense. And then I started waking up, and um, where where some of us, you know, are depressed and alcoholic, some of us are filled up with rage and alcoholic, and that's. Very difficult to live with. I know I went back to the classroom and probably my hardest year in my sobriety, and it did lead me to Al-Anon, was my first year back in the classroom. I had no skills for dealing with the stresses other than booze and dope. So how on earth do you deal with stresses? And I fell back on two of my old tried and trues. And it was all verbal, to deal with people who got in my way, uh, see, I used to be nice and polite frequently and then go drink it away. Now, I couldn't drink it away, so verbally I became abusive and full of ridicule and put down. And that's how I dealt with a lot of my students. And I was sober two, three, four years. And in Al-Anon, probably two years. So I'm in the program, working program, going to meetings every night. And it was... Uh, uh, time for uh, student-teacher evaluations. And one of my students, I think his name was Mike, This is, a, I, but I, I remember the classroom vividly. And we were kind of doing some, how was the class, you know. And these were seniors, so these were people who were almost on the verge of humanity. <laughs> you know, grown-up moments in public. This one young man um, turned to me and he said, Father you have a way of making people feel real small well that was the the ridicule the sarcasm uh, that was that was the tool i was using to deal with stress deal with stressful people and I have had to learn other ways of dealing with stress, and the point is, it just takes a long time, and my great teacher is pain. I, I remember that scene with that young man vividly. Now, I can't remember his face, and I don't remember his name, but I remember what he said because what he said was the truth, and I had to just kind of realize. I need to learn in recovery a whole new way of dealing with things. I really have to learn how to handle the tremendous stress because the stress isn't going to go away. Uh, Not on this planet, not in this century. So what can I do? Well, I had better find some tools to use. And a big one is self-acceptance. When I give myself permission to be me as I am, it's a relief. Instead of, let's try harder to be different, to please these people you'll never see again. Uh, Or, please certain relatives. They've never been pleased with you. It has nothing to do with you. They're crazy. So, what should I do? Well, if you quote me on this, I will deny it. Um, I don't return some phone calls. Now, some fall through the cracks. I mean, I would have returned the phone call, except I wrote the number down wrong. I mean, that happens. You need to know this. I am a little dyslexic when it comes to writing numbers, and regularly I reverse numbers when I write them down. I mean, what a flaw! Yeah, I've had it for years. It's not going to go away. So some people call, I write the number down wrong, and I don't get back to them. I have one relative I don't call back. And I have the number, and it's right. Uh, And that's because there's nothing there but misery, and there's nothing I can do about it. What do I do with this relative? I send an occasional friendly postcard. That way I don't have to hear the voice back that will find fault with the postcard, you know. Uh, But I make a little bit of contact. But I, I avoid the messy situation. And I do this as a grown-up. I used to listen to this person for hours. Life is too short. And I simply don't have time. And what's also true is no one does. God does. We turn a lot of things over to the care of God because God has the time and the skill. And the ability and the wisdom to work this out. That's a big turning it over. As as Alan says in one of the meetings I go to, um, the reason step three follows step two is because sane people turn it over. Instead of trying to solve it ourselves over and over and over and over again. And some things just don't get solved. Not in this life, it seems like. I mean, it's easy to see far away. You look at, like, the Northern Ireland mess, you know, which is a mess, has been for centuries. Peace accord signed, okay, we're going to stop shooting each other's children. And then one group says, yeah, but we want to march through your part of town and rub your face in the dirt, reminding you that we beat the shit out of you 300 years ago. We want to do that one more time. It's our right. And the other group says, if you do that, we'll shoot you. But it's our right. Now, let's talk about the peace accords. What does it take? to get people to realize that behavior makes people crazy and some behavior can change. Stop the marches. Just stop the marches. Stop reveling in the past and get to the present. Well, then we lose who we were. (laughs) What's the loss? You know, when identity is all wrapped up in resentment and rage and power, it's a time to change, seems to me. Um, letting go of all those awful resentments. Now, I can't do anything about them. I can't do anything about a lot of things. The world's a mess, but there are some things I can change. And again, this is the al focus. What can I change? And so I want to end up this morning, by talking about little victories. Little victories. There are some things I can do. And frequently they look totally insignificant. However, they're victories. Um, In my own, in my own, and again, it's my stuff, so adapt as you need. One of my abilities for years has been commenting On, um, particularly my mom, when my mom would say something that was really politically ridiculous, I would try to point that out. I thought this added to the family dialogue. And I'm sure that if I just pointed out her political craziness enough, she'd change her mind. And agree with me, and then everyone would be happy. I did this for years. For years. And I what I would do is stir the pot. And make everybody nuts. I'd make my mom angry and I'd embarrass my dad. I mean, was, but I, I felt better about it. I was just expressing myself. I was being a jerk. So um, one night after I'd been going to Alamon for about seven years, my mom said something ridiculous. And I noticed it was ridiculous. And I noticed And this was a a grace moment. I had the choice of pointing it out or not, instead of the knee-jerk reaction, which had been there for years. And instead of pointing it out, I kept my big mouth shut. Since that time, we have gotten along better. It's a little tiny victory, a little tiny victory. Um, when my dad was declared terminal, um, and I got to spend nights with him, this was, I don't have a family to take care of, I mean, I could be there. And in a variety of ways, one, I i, I opted out of the family craziness in various ways. I mean, I, I ran as far as I could, you know. Um, So this was a chance to do some participation, and I was able to do it thanks to the program. But there's craziness going on, too. Anyway, he's declared terminal. He's 91. He's been frail for a couple of years. Uh, We all decide no unnecessary measures. We had not even talked about that before, but it was just the very clear thought, you know. Um, So lunch comes, and I'm there, and I'm real jump. I mean, I... I've had stuff with my dad, too. You know, I mean, who hasn't had stuff with parents? And my parents are in there and, you know, I'm almost 50 and I don't know what to do and I'm feeling like I'm nine. Um, and um, lunch came and he wanted to eat the ice cream first. And my mom told him, you can't eat the ice cream first. You have to have the soup first. Okay. No control issues at my house. Um, And what I wanted to do was have my bones jump out of my skin and scream at the top of my lungs, he's terminal, give him the ice cream. I am grateful to every Al-Anon meeting I have ever been to, because instead of that option, I said, I'm so uncomfortable, I'm going to burst into sweat. I got up, went out in the hall, and walked back and forth for about 15 minutes, reminding myself that they had worked this deal out long before I showed up. You know, this is their dance, not mine. And then I could come back, and it was when I was able to let go of that. And again, it was it was a huge letting go, a little victory. Um, I didn't know what to do with my dad. I mean, like I say, we ha- we've never been chatty with each other. Um, I suddenly realized instead of treating him like my dad, why don't I treat him like an old sick guy who's dying? I have dealt with old sick guys who are dying for years. Soon as I realized that, I could be with them. I was able to touch him. I was able to talk to him. I was able to be present. This was a good thing for all of us. And I found the little victories, and it's an Al Anon thing, letting go of some of my favorite issues, a lot of self-acceptance, not stirring the pot, being present, um, and um, lots of people's insides got taken care of because we showed lots of respect to lots of people, and I got to spend the nights, and that meant um, did a little bit of conversation, not a lot, because we didn't have a lot to say to each other, but I was able to be physically present. I was able to rub feet. I was able to rub hands. I was able to put Vaseline on dry lips. I was able to give liquid. I I was able to be there in a way that I never had been able to be present before. And I felt emotionally present and I felt connected. And then I got to preside at the funeral, which was a great honor. And uh, this was a good man who just wasn't very involved with the family, you know. Sure, not with me. But I asked someone else to preach because I didn't think I'd be able to do that um, for a lot of reasons. Uh, But I was able to preside and show him some respect and some dignity and show respect and dignity for all of us. Um, And it was a good thing. I mean, the Irish who have little, they say, (laughs) the, the Irish love funerals. It's one of the things we've done well for years. And it was just, I mean, it was a grand funeral. It was a great letting go. It was a way of showing respect. No one was in active disease that day. It was a graced experience. And I found um, dealing with my mom, when I'm dealing with her as my mom, I become nine. When I remember that this is a lady who's just lost her husband, I'm very present. Those are, that's what I have to remember in my head. Because otherwise I revert to type and start getting critical and awful, and you know? So I, little victories. Little victories at home. Um, I live in a neighborhood that has a lot of craziness. And one of the things I do for my own sake and to perk up the neighborhood is I have a front yard. I plant things. I grow things. And it's really nice sometimes. And there's these some really awful apartment buildings. Um, I mean, they're, they're, some apartment buildings are wonderful. These are awful. Um, to see people who are clearly in trouble, burdened, walking by and suddenly noticing the yard and going, oh. That's a great victory. That's a great victory. And I do it as, there's nothing I can do about Northern Ireland. But I can plant bulbs. I can cut back the roses. You know. I can do these kinds of things in the yard. I can also pick up the trash. People litter, not while I'm watching, but <laughs> but they litter. <laughs> I get that pre-Alanon tone of voice in talking to certain persons. Um, uh, one of the slogans that I've seen on bumper stickers is to think globally and act locally, I think that's a good suggestion. I want to pay attention to the world. Um, I want to know what's going on, I want to see the ups and downs, I want to participate. But as far as my behavior goes, I've got to throw that into a local place. My home group meeting, the neighborhood I live in, you know, the area I live in, me. That's where I can put my attention. Just sitting, bemoaning the fact that it's awful over there doesn't help anybody. Um, a thing or two on, on um, just again on depression for those who've dealt with it some. Uh, what can one do in depression? Um, self-care becomes real important. Um, forcing oneself to eat intelligently. Forcing oneself to do a little bit of exercise. Forcing oneself to get to a meeting are three important things I can do when I get down and if I can only do two of those three I think that's good and if I can only do one of those three <laughs> I think that's good <laughs> I don't beat myself up because I'm not operating on all cylinders I, I'm just kind of glad that any motion is there at all uh, but when I can take care of those I'm in a pretty good place Um, What else do I know? Um, Accepting limitations is a great freedom. And the reason it's a great freedom is because it puts us in an honest place. Talking to my sponsor again, you know, I mentioned the the Al-Anon balance, that Al-Anon skill of being able to have conversations without doing a lot of blaming or a lot of of, of, uh, taking responsibility that's not ours. What Terry told me once was: um, at meetings, talk about real things. Or when you're talking to your sponsor, or you're talking to a significant friend, talk about real things. And when you're talking about real things, um, you know, the things that are plus, that are minus, but they're real. They're inside here. Do it without beating yourself up. I'm so bad. I'm so bad. Nah, stop that. That's luxury. Um, why do you think you're competent to judge yourself accurately? You have judged no one else accurately in your life. Well, you have special insight into your craziness. You know. Again, God is the one who is, who can handle each of us well. This is why we have hope. <laughs> uh, what will God's judgment be on me that I need a lot of meetings? I can handle that that I have lots of healing. Yep. I don't mind that judgment. Tom's moody. Oh, he really is. More than you know. (laughs) Um, But I want to be able to talk about my stuff without beating me up. And without letting me off the hook. And without letting me off the hook. I mean, the reason I took the money is because she left it out is missing the fact that I took the money. Let me talk about what's going on. Some of the feelings, some of the behaviors with some people I can trust. And I find if I can do that in that kind of balance regularly, I walk through things. Things change. Things get bigger, things get smaller, things get richer, things get poorer, but things change. And if change is going on, you know life is going on. And I think the Al-Anon program invites us to have a life. Instead of waiting for everyone else to shape up so we could have a life. Have a life. You know? Well, I'm going to start living as soon as these nine things happen. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. One of the reasons some of us are a little angry, and by the way, I presume anger. Whenever I'm talking to anybody, I just presume anger. Uh, and I presume hurt. Because uh, if you've been around at all, there's a lot of hurt and anger. How can we talk about that? How can we live in that? Um, But one of the reasons some of us are angry is um, our deep, deep, deep question is, when is it going to be my turn? See, I've been waiting to get in line, but no one's letting me in. When is it going to be my turn? And uh, it's going to be your turn when you take it. Think of good old Susan B. Anthony. Well, one day men just decided to give women the vote. Oh, that's not true. A lot of people had to fight a lot of years. And stared the men down to give them the vote. And they had to face ridicule and humiliation and jail and forced feedings in jail and... Lots of stuff. Um, it's a great story, old Susan B. I see if I, again, this is, no one is asking my opinion on this, but I would have a national holiday in her honor, too. As one of the three great Americans, or guess four, Lincoln Washington, Martin Luther King Jr., and Susan B. Anthony. Talk about significantly changing the lives of lots of people. Oh well. Um, one more cause. <laughs> and I like them. Um, but it's it, the little victory. Sometimes our, our expectations are so high. Well, I want the whole family to change. Well, that might not happen. You know, that might not happen. In, um, um, Lois had to do a lot. To um, cope with a difficult living situation. In this book, again, this The Soul of Sponsorship, there's a little introduction. Uh, Bill's depressed. It's 1940. He's almost ready to meet Father Dowling. And this is this is what it says. Um, that night, a cold, damp November night in 1940, Bill W., co-founder of AA, had gone to bed. His feet were hanging over the end of the bed, which nearly filled the small room he and his wife Lois had rented on the second floor of the 24th Street A.A. Club in New York City. He's been sober five or six years. They have rented a room in the back of the A.A. Clubhouse. And she stayed with them. I mean, this is... Two orange crates with curtains served as their dresser. Hooks on the wall held their clothes. Lois supported them with her job at a department store. She worked at Macy's. She's the one that had the check that came in that paid the bills. <coughs> this is high start Now, the next line, though, I think is profoundly hopeful. It reads, that night, she was out somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, I think I'll stay home with Bill, who's real depressed. Or go bowling, you know, or go to a movie or walk. That night, she was out somewhere. She was taken care of. She may have been talking to someone who made her laugh. You know, instead of Bill who was, well here he says, Lois, that night she was out somewhere. Cold and rain, cold rain and sleet were beating on the tin roof above him. Bill was wondering whether the pain he was feeling in his stomach was an ulcer. <laughs> Gee, I'd love to stay home with Bill and talk about that. Um, <laughs> Lois had the common sense to have a life. She was out somewhere. And sometimes, for some of us, that means getting out for an afternoon. Or out for a morning. And if you know someone in high stress, and we've, we've done this with uh, people who've had, you know, chronic illness and and uh, dealing with people sick with AIDS and so forth, and the caregivers are around. You know, what can you do? Sometimes it's saying, listen, Fred, I'll, I'll take care of things. Why don't you take the afternoon off? And every so often just go help out, you know, which means sometimes just babysitting. But you give the person under the major stress, under the major burden, an afternoon off. And sometimes they hate that. They hate the afternoon off because they'd rather be home, you know, being crazed. Our craziness is as addictive as anything else is. And to learn how to take some time for ourselves is a grace. And when you start doing that, it's one of the, not little victories, one of the great victories. And if that just means an afternoon or an evening, that's a big deal. Um, Because many of us need all the strength we can get, and there are places to get that strength. And we have to know where to go, and as grown-ups, get there. Um, One of the poems that I've always thought had a lot to do with our journey is written by an American poet named Mary Oliver, and it's called The Journey. And um, she describes the process real nicely. And here's what she writes. This is in her book of poems called New and Selected Poems by Mary Oliver, the winner of the Pulitzer Prize. This was a few years ago, Pulitzer Prize for poetry. I'm not a big poetry reader, actually. I, I'm too speedy. And like I say, my... my um, Bedtime reading is usually horrific. Serial killers um, always makes me relax and puts me right to sleep. (laughs) There's been a lot of dismemberment and police involved. Um, But I force myself to read some poetry because you have to do it slowly. And if if your insides are like mine, you have to read it two or three or four or five times to get it. And um, that's countercultural. Um, we want to skim and do a sound bite and, you know, then vote, uh, instead of processing stuff through and taking a look at it and chewing on it and flavoring it and then making a decision, do I like this or not, and that's a lifetime process. But I like a lot of Mary Oliver. A lot of her stuff is writing about nature. She writes about the outdoors and otters and snakes and stuff, you know. My one snake story, and it's an al story, too, I... Um, Last May, I guess, I got to go to central Mississippi and did an Al-Anon weekend there, which was a great privilege, and uh, I have done that a couple of times, and one of the very prominent Al-Anon persons in that part of Mississippi is a fellow named Skip, and Skip is a potter. He is a craftsman. He is an artist. He makes wonderful things with his hands, and he's born and bred in Mississippi his whole life and has never lived anywhere else. Um So he likes all that, you know. And Mississippi, by that I mean, it's a very rural state, and it's it's forests and people hunt and they they really do shoot squirrels. I mean, it's just amazing. I and eat them. I mean, this is shocking to me. Um, And I, uh, I the first time I went to Mississippi, I was a little anxious and. Trying to be on my best behavior, and uh, I remember noticing, I mean, there was, a, there was a, a, a little lake, and there were swampy territories, and there were little rivers, and it was marshy all over the place. Um, and I, I asked one of them, um, gee, do you have a lot of wildlife? Well, that, it's a big hunting state. They have wildlife all over the place. They've got uh, you know deer, and they've got possum, and they've got skunk, and they've got otter, and they have a lot of stuff in Mississippi. And a lot of uh, fish and sea and, and um, catfish and all those things. So, do you have a lot of animals? Yes, yes, yes. And then I said, do you have snakes? And they said, oh, we have all kinds of snakes. We've got copperheads and rattlesnakes and coral snakes and water moccasins. We're just thick with snakes. And I said, well, um, where do all these little snakeys live? <laughs> and they said, wherever there's water. which meant I was surrounded Um, that night Skip was I stayed on the paths and in my room that night Skip said there was an alligator in the lake and I should come and see it and I, I just I was such a snob I couldn't do it now I'm better I would go and look at it now but this was like five years ago and I would think alligator give me a break you know this sounds like He wants me to participate in a National Geographic shoot. You know, I'm a city kid. I'm sophisticated. Leave me alone. So consequently, I didn't go see the alligator, you know. So it was my loss because I was stupid, but I'm capable of losing from stupidity. So I was talking using images that I thought these Mississippi people would understand. Um, And I I talked about anger, and I referred to someone as being as mean as a snake. So Skip comes up to me afterwards. And he says, uh, snakes aren't mean if you leave them alone. (laughs) That's an Al-Anon moment, I think, that we could reflect on here. Leave the snake alone. The Journey by Mary Oliver. One day you finally knew what you had to do. I spend, I spend a lot of time not knowing what I have to do. Uh, that's part of the rhythm for me. I mean, it's just not clear, it's not obvious. I, I know something maybe should happen, but I don't know where or when, and all of a sudden something falls into place. One day, you finally knew what you had to do. And began. That's an important part of recovery. <laughs> Some of us know what to do, we just don't do it. But one day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. And they always shout. And they're always experts. And they always make us miserable. Some of the biggest experts I know are some of the most miserable people I've ever met. And they shout their advice Oof. I used to shout back. Now I changed the channel <laughs> Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble, and you felt the old tug at your ankles, you're trying to get out the door, and they're holding on. You just Passed out, the holding on, you know, dragging bodies across the room. Mend my life, mend my life. Take care of me, fix me, mend my life, each voice cried. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations. It's hurricane time. You know, it's chaos. It's a disaster. And it's time to take some action. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations. Though their melancholy was terrible. I mean, it's pathetic. It was already late enough and a wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones. For many of us, on the day we decide to take some action, there's nothing around us but wreckage. Well, I'll take some action soon as someone else cleans up the road. It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, little by little, as you left their voices behind, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds. And there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own. I can almost remember that day. There was a new voice in the head, and it was mine. A new voice that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world. See, recovery doesn't separate us from the world, our craziness does. Recovery helps us get deeper and deeper into the world, into life. That kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do. Determined to save the only life you could save. yours. And then it's amazing who follows. Um, I will read it again without editorial opinion. The Journey by Mary Oliver. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. Though the whole house began to tremble. And you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations. Though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough, and a wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own. That kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world. Determined to do the only thing you could do. Determined to save the only life you could save. We could probably read that at meetings. But fights would break out because it's not program approved, you know. But the instincts are sure real. So, um, self-acceptance, self-care, learning how to be of loving service to each other uh, in ways that don't harm people (laughs) are important parts. Letting God work. God who sows seed God who is patient, God who has skills. Um, God who seeks us out friendly. I was thinking, you know that notion, I mentioned the parable yesterday about the shepherd looking for the lost sheep or the woman looking for the coin. Uh, sometimes the impression given that the lost sheep and the coin are bad, they got lost after all, you know, bad coin, bad sheep. And some of us, when we think, well, God is looking us because we're bad, you know, and uh, that's not what it's about. The reason the shepherd looks for the lost sheep and the woman looks for the coin is because they're valuable. They're valuable. And the reason God seeks us is because we are valuable. We are treasures. We are that which God loves. So it's not scary being found by someone who treasures you. And that's real true as we even discover ourselves, you know. Discover who we are and how we're put together. Rumi, I'll end with him. One of the lines of his poetry. Um, he says, "Where there is ruin, R U I N, where there is ruin, there may be treasure. There may be treasure. As many of us begin recovery in Al-Anon, what we see is ruin. Either we're the ruin, or they're the ruin, or someone else. But, but it's, it's none. I don't know of anybody who joined Al-Anon because they were really happy people. <laughs> Gee, I'm so happy. I think I'll join Al-Anon." Most of us come in with a lot of numbness and exhaustion and pain. With some work, with some steps, with some people, we discover treasure. And the treasure is us. We're the treasure. If this is a room full of treasure, and you're here, your treasure, too. So just keep that in mind. And why don't we end um, our weekend together? Lunch is in a while, but there's a bit of a delay on lunch. I'm sure that's for very important reasons. So we have some time, and a lot of us are very busy people. And I know some already have had to leave, and, you know, there's they need us down there so badly. Um <laughs> What I would suggest for the 45 minutes or so before lunch is you take some time for yourself. Go for a slow walk. If you haven't been in the back property and up the hill, walk up. Just sit in the chapel for a while. Do some real, slow, peaceful things in God's nature for a while. And soak in the love and the care and the skill that God gives us. Lots of times I cannot feel that. But when I can feel that, it helps the whole day. So that's my suggestion. Joni V. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Why don't we end with the serenity prayer? (laughs) No, God, gravity, the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Keep coming back.